Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel according to John. I'm going to read there from verse 16 to the end of verse 21. It's on page 888. It's fairly evident to those of us who are over 60 that the orders of service are put together by younger people because if you need the large print version, it's very difficult to decipher what page it's on, but it's on page 1055. This is the third in a trilogy of messages that have focused on the first uh, feast, Jewish feast that Jesus went to after He had been baptized. And as we've noticed before, John's gospel, unlike the first three gospels, is shaped around Jesus' visits to these various Jewish feasts. And uh, as we come to the last of these three reflections on what happened there, we're continuing uh, the story of His conversation with Nicodemus. And uh, perhaps helpful for us to read what I personally take to be Jesus' last words to Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." Another of the striking features of John's gospel is that unlike the other three gospels, it's absolutely chock-a-block with conversations. And this is one of the longer ones, as we saw last week, when Jesus is receiving this night visitor, Nicodemus, whom He later describes as the great theologian among the Jewish people. He is a man who assumes, judging by his opening comments to Jesus, he assumes that he actually believes in Jesus. Uh, 
one of the reasons that John chooses this conversation is because Nicodemus fits into a category of people uh, contemporaneous with the Lord Jesus who believed that they believed in Him, but only believed because of the things that He did and didn't believe in Him as He really is. And we understand from our own experience that that's a not uncommon phenomenon, people believing in Jesus, but it's the Jesus that they have constructed for themselves. And it's in order to penetrate this that Jesus immediately speaks to him about what it is that he needs but cannot provide for himself in order that he can discover what Jesus can provide for him. And so he insists to Nicodemus in verse 3 and verse 5, again in verse 7 and throughout this passage, that what Nicodemus actually needs is a Spirit-given, sovereign, gracious work of God on his mind, on his heart, on his affections, if he is ever going to come to see who Jesus really is, and therefore ever going to come really to believe in Jesus. And it's, it's fairly obvious that when we get to these last few verses, verses 14 and 15, Nicodemus is beginning to disappear from the scene. The conversation has ended. But before the conversation has ended, Jesus does something, I think, exceedingly shrewd, if one can dare to say about the Lord Jesus, that He does something exceedingly shrewd, since everything He does is shrewd. He plants a seed into Nicodemus's mind. It's actually a bit like the parables in the Gospels. The parables in the Gospels are seeds planted in the minds of the common people as they're described, the artisans, the people of the villages and the countryside. And Jesus plants seeds of how the kingdom of God works in their minds by these parables uh, that are easy to remember, but as becomes clear in the gospel, they are not so easy to understand. Uh, I have a friend who once described them as time bombs planted in people's minds so that in some future occasion they would be stimulated, re-stimulated to think about these parables. But Nicodemus is, is not a man from the countryside. Nicodemus is a man from what we would call the theological seminary. And so what Jesus plants in his mind is not an everyday story that points to the power of the kingdom of God, but a piece of biblical theology from Numbers chapter 21, an occasion in the wilderness when the people grumbled against what God was providing. They found themselves being judged. They found themselves exposed to these serpents, and many of them were dying. And as they cried out to Moses to find some way of saving them, Moses held up this 
emblem of a serpent, a reflection of the very thing that was destroying them, and told them to look to this serpent. And if they looked to the serpent, they would be healed and live. And that was exactly what happened. And Jesus plants this seed thought into the mind of Nicodemus. And He says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, in the same way the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. You'll notice He says this in verse 15, so that whoever believes in Him may have not just physical healing, but as we've already heard with the children, spiritual healing and enjoy eternal life. And so, you can imagine as Nicodemus fades out of the picture until later on in John's gospel, every time Nicodemus reads Numbers 21, the memory of what Jesus has said will come back to him. Every time he hears it read, the memory will come back to him. Every time he teaches from Numbers 21, there will be this background music playing in his mind, causing him to ponder, what did Jesus mean by that analogy between Moses lifting up the serpent and the Son of Man being lifted up in order to provide eternal life? And although there are quotation marks at the beginning of verse 16, um, and probably somewhere a helpful little footnote, it seems to me at the beginning of verse 16 there should not be quotation marks as though this was a continuation of what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, but brackets, parenthesis, in which John himself is turning towards the reader and saying, gentle reader, let me explain to you what Jesus meant by what He said to Nicodemus. And I say that because the language that's used in these verses is not the kind of language that Jesus uses in John's gospel, but the kind of language that John himself uses when he speaks in his own voice in John's gospel. So, I think it's helpful for us to understand that John is pressing the pause button here on what Jesus has said about the Son of Man being lifted up so that those who believe in Him might have eternal life, and He is explaining to us, just in case we are as blind as Nicodemus, what Jesus was really talking about. It's, as it were, the explanation of the tree that grows out of the seed. And it is, of course, uh, the most, or certainly one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, at least verse 16 is, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's an enormously rich passage, too rich, you'll understand, to be handled in just one sermon. I'm not asking David to give me more sermons in order to expound this passage, but rather what I want to do is to focus our attention, a bit like the optometrist uh, when you're sitting in the darkened room and there's that chart on the wall, and he says, now, focusing on one particular letter, 
So, as your spiritual optometrist, as it were, today, we are focusing on just this one verse, although we'll see why the verses that follow do follow, in which clearly John is remembering that all that Jesus did, He did because of the immensity of God's love for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This is what Martin Luther called a little Bible. Everything before channels into this. Everything afterwards flows from this. And uh, I think I want to begin with a quotation, if you'll allow me. Quotation from uh, a well-known preacher and author. Um, And I wonder if you can identify this preacher-author. So, here's the quotation. I want to tell you about a very simple conviction I have as a pastor, and the simple conviction I have is this. Most Christian people spend their Christian lives not realizing just how much God loves them. Many Christian people spend their Christian lives not realizing just how much God loves them. Not 100% sure why the most becomes the many, but I wonder if you're able to identify the author. Uh, I'm sure you can. He's sitting in front of me. These were the opening words of David Gibson's Sunday evening sermon. And he's not alone in believing that. He's not the only pastor in the world. It's not got to do with the atmosphere in Aberdeen or the amount of granite that surrounds us here. It is the experience of Christian physicians of the soul throughout the centuries that despite all of the Bible's emphasis on the love of God, it at the end of the day, despite what people say, usually actually non-Christians, not every believer has fully embraced the significance of a statement like this in John chapter 3 about the immensity of God's love for us who are in this world. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so, this text that at least in, in my dim and distant past, was always regarded as an evangelistic text. This would be a text that ministers would preach to those who were not yet Christians, it is embedded here for us, not only if we are not yet Christians and have never truly experienced the love of God, but also if we are already Christians and have not sensed, not felt the impact upon our lives, our psyches, our dispositions, as well as our minds, of the sheer greatness of God's love for us. And there is no doubt that this is one of, it's not the only, but it's certainly one of 
the greatest and clearest statements in the whole of the New Testament about the extent, the marvel, the wonder of the love that God has for His people. And so, I want to think about this passage in two ways, spending almost all of the time on the greatness of the love of God, and then before we've finished, by thinking about the great significance of our response to it, the greatness of the love of God. That's what uh, John, as I say, is speaking about here. And when he speaks about it, he, he gives us the measurements of it. That's what's so interesting. You remember how the Apostle Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 3. He, he says, here are the measurements of the love of God that we can come to know in Jesus Christ. And he says something that almost everyone who has read it has thought is really peculiar. He describes the love of God in four dimensions. It's height, it's length, it's breadth, and it's depth. And while uh, commentators puzzle over why does he do that, I think the fairly obvious reason for giving us the four dimensions of the love of God is to say to people who live in a three-dimensional world, there is another dimension of reality to the love of God. It comes to us from another world. Just as John says at the beginning of 1 John 3, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us? And the, the background to His language is, is the idea of what, what country does this come from? Where does this come from? Because it's, it doesn't come from here. As we say in Scotland, it's no normal. And this is what John wants to emphasize to us, that there is something beyond this world in the way in which God has come to love us. So, how do you measure love? And how do you measure God's love? Well, in a sense, you use the same measuring tape for God's love that you use for any love. How do we measure love? We, we measure love, first of all, by the identity of the lover. And it's, it's embedded in us since the stories we were told from childhood that the greater the significance of the lover, the more amazing his love is. That's what so many of these old tales are about, about how amazing it is that this individual should come and love could choose to love. And so, this statement that God so loved the world, it's, a, it's an amazing statement. The God who created what is visible to us, the God who created what is invisible to the naked eye but has become visible to us, the God who has created what we can only calculate exists, the God who is so great as to bring all of this into being, 
to be able to say, this is the one who so loves. It's breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. And then we measure love in another way, don't we? We measure love not only by the greatness of the lover, we measure love by the contrast between the lover and the loved one. The astonishment of the stories we were told, what, what gave us hope as little ones who thought very little about ourselves, what you sometimes think gives fans at pop concerts hope as they adore uh, the pop stars, knowing absolutely nothing about what they're really like. This adoration has got something to do with this great one is in my presence, and I feel his or her affection flowing through the songs. Not in every case, of course, but in the better ones. And that's what John says here, God so loved the world. He's not thinking here about the world in a neutral sense. He tends to use the word world in a rather negative sense. It was, an, it was in a negative sense that the Jews understood it. The world was the great unwashed out there by contrast with we whom God has chosen in His covenant mercy. But it's also very obvious in, in John's gospel, this refers not just to the great unwashed Gentile world, but to the world in its present condition, the world in its rebellion against God. And he details this in the verses that follow, in verses 17 to 21. What is the condition of this world that God has loved? First of all, it's in the darkness. Second, it refuses to come to the light. And thirdly, therefore, it places itself in a position of condemnation and it is actually perishing. That is to say, in a sense, there is no future fulfillment of the world's aspirations in its own condition. And it's this that is the marvel of God's love, the contrast between who He is and who you are. I mean, I'm sure there's not a husband in the room who uh, has never it said with a smile, I married up. Shame on you if you didn't marry up. But you didn't marry up as far as this when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Talk about opposites. And interestingly, these are not opposites that attract, are they? The opposite of this infinitely great and holy and sovereign God, for all that we are told He is gracious, makes us scurry back into the darkness. You, you only need to say the word God today or to mention the Lord Jesus to sense that there is a, there is a, a scurrying back into the darkness and a desire to engulf you also in the darkness. Friends, it's the world that God shouldn't have loved that John says he loved. And then he goes on to explain not only 
the greatness of the lover's identity and the impoverishment of the loved one's condition. But um, how do you measure love? Um, you see a girl with an engagement ring, and you think, I never knew he could afford a ring like that. <laughs> um, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only Son. Some of you maybe read a book by the American intellectual Nicholas Walterstorff of Yale, whose son died in a climbing accident in Europe when his son was 21. Towards the end of that book, Nicholas Walterstorff, who has been an immensely significant figure in the academy in the United States of America, especially among Christians, writes this very poignant line. He says, now if anyone wants to know who Nick Walterstorff is, he needs to know I am a man who lost his son. What he's saying is this, people may define me in all these plaudits that I have experienced, but what actually defines me at the very root of my being is that I lost my son in a climbing accident. But what, in a way, John is saying to us here is that same poignancy, but it has a magnificence about it, doesn't it? That God so loved the world that He was, if I can use this language, prepared to lose His Son on the cross. To hear His Son crying, my God, why have you forsaken me? All these others I understand, but why have you forsaken me? What love is that? That's love that we, we cannot begin to comprehend or calculate. And it's all over the New Testament. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Or as Paul says almost breathlessly, the Son of God was sent to me because He loved me and He gave Himself for me. And then the fourth way in which you measure love, by the identity of the lover, by the distance between the lover and the loved one, by the sacrifice the lover is prepared to make for the loved one, and then fourthly, by what the lover wants for the loved one. And this is as mind-bending as the others. What he wants for us is that we should not perish, but have everlasting life, that we should be brought into his presence and live with him forever and forever in this world of His amazing love. And it's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you've, this has ever crossed your mind because it's a very well-known verse, that embedded in this single statement is the work of the Holy Trinity. No mention of the Trinity. But John speaks about coming to believe 
And he's writing on the back of what Jesus has just said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you'll never see, you'll never enter, you'll never come to believe unless the Holy Spirit works in your mind, your heart, your life, your affections, and brings you to faith. And then, of course, there's the work of the Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. So, where's the third person of the Trinity? Well, He's in the Word God, isn't He? I mean, if you just work out the logic here, if it was the Son who was sent, then the one who sent Him, not the Son, the Holy Spirit in this verse, it's the Father. It's the Father who sent His Son as John again says, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. And it seems to me this brings into rather sharp focus the point that David was making last Sunday night. Um, The simple conviction that many Christian people spend their Christian lives not realizing just how much God loves them I think most of us grasp more easily. We certainly sing more easily, Jesus loves me, this I know. But what Christian ministers have found throughout the ages is that that doesn't always transfer to being able to say, the Father loves me, this I know. But it's not an instinct in me to say, Abba, Father. And yes, I know that sometimes is the result of having an experience of human fatherhood that distorts the word father. But this verse isn't speaking about human fatherhood. This is saying to us, in a sense, forget whatever your experience of human fatherhood is like, because at very best, that's a pale shadow of the, of the reality. And focus on this, the kind of Father you come to know through Jesus Christ, the kind of Father who has given His Son for you. Let me read you some words of a greater than I, and I think David Gibson would also be willing to say a greater than he also is. These are the words of John Owen. He says, Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts, concerning the thoughts of the Father towards them. They are well persuaded of the Lord Christ and His goodwill. The difficulty lies in what is their acceptance with the Father. And he goes on to say, how few of the saints are acquainted with the privilege of holding communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon Him? What fears, what questionings are there of His goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in Him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. I think that is absolutely on the money. And one of the reasons it seems to me it's on the money is because Uh, there are not a few Christians who have had the gospel preached in this way, and this is the gospel they believe. God loves you because Jesus died for you. 
Now, I want to say very emphatically, that is not the gospel. And what John is saying here is the gospel is, in a sense, the reverse. It's that Jesus died for you because God loved you. And you see, the, the danger of thinking in terms of that first description, God loves you because Jesus died for you, is because it inevitably produces, at least subliminally in my spirit, that God the Father loves me only because somehow or another, somehow or another, Jesus managed to twist His arm behind His back and say, here's the deal. You're going to love them, aren't you, if I die for them? But what the gospel teaches us, what breaks into our souls right at the very root of the being of God, the blessed Trinity, and especially here in the Father, is that it's because the Father loves me that Jesus died for me. Yes, as Owen goes on to say, although many think there is no sweetness at all in the Father towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus, he says it's true that alone is the way of communication. That's how God loves reaches us. But the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. Um, some strange reason that song must be 40 years old of Mike Oldfield. Does that ring any bells with some of you? That has the words, and I can't break through. I can't break through. And here is the point at which I rather suspect in many Christians' lives, as David was saying last Sunday night, this is the point at which Christians have not broken through. And what we need is not that we can break through, but for this understanding of the vastness of the love of God, the Trinity, for us that's rooted in the compassionate heart of the Father. I, I sometimes wonder if this is why, towards the end of the gospel, in the upper room, last hours of Jesus with His disciples, He says this, that from one point of view is so obvious. He says, the Father Himself loves you. The Father Himself loves you. And so, you see, what, what John is doing for us is he is embracing us into the wonder of the knowledge that, that there is no discrepancy in the love of the Spirit for us and the love of the Son for us and the love of the Father for us. This is a conspiracy of love in which they have engaged that the Father sent the Son, sacrificed on the cross, and sends the Spirit to open our blind eyes to bring us to faith and to trust in Him, but to trust in the Lord Jesus, understanding that He is the gift of the Father's love to us and for us. How great this love is! And this is what John is saying. 
He's saying not just God loved the world, but God so loved the world. Such love, so loved. I've never forgotten that social meeting at the end of a conference, a lady coming to one of the other speakers and myself and telling us the story of her own pilgrimage to faith and She said at the end of the story, and so I discovered for the first time in my life that I was really loved. What a gospel this is. What a gospel this is for an unloved world, and an unlovely world, and an unloving world. It's interesting, isn't it, that that so many people, somehow or another in our society, the one thing God has got to be is a God of love, isn't it? You don't meet many people who say they believe in God without kind of insisting that He's a God of love, but often what that means is, since He's a God of love, He lets me do what I want to do and what I like to do. Um, But the truth of the matter is they don't really believe that God is a God of love at all. How do we know that? Because they don't give a scrap of evidence they believe that God is a God of love. They don't respond to Him as a God of love. They don't want to praise Him and adore Him and live for Him, give everything to Him who has given everything to them. So, you see, you don't believe in a God of love by making up your own God, but by understanding that this is the God who really is, and that there is this amazing truth about Him. This is a truth, friends, so demanding, um, because it draws us out of the darkness that we want to live our own little lives in. It draws us into the light that exposes us in our, in our rebellion against God, in our sinfulness, and then it embraces us in the arms of the crucified Christ as the Spirit works within us to bring us to God. And that's why John goes on to emphasize how important our response is. Um, he says to us, you know, you, you, you are in the darkness. He says, you're actually under condemnation, and it's your own choice and your world is perishing. It has no ultimate future unless you come to believe in Jesus Christ. And I know people say, well, I will find my own way to Him. And I want to say to them, dear friend, do you really think that if God's Son said to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there is another way, please find that other way to save them rather than the cross. And what his father said by implication is, my son, there is no other way. And yet I in my foolishness think that I can find another way when God Himself is showing me there is no other way. And that apart from this way, does this seem very exclusive? 
But friend, won't you let God be exclusive about being God? Won't you allow Him to decide how it is that He is going to save you in His love? Do you want to Do you want to reject that? Do you want to scurry under the boulder back into the darkness in the face of that? And yet you can do that, can't you? And when you do that, what you do is you turn your back on this amazing love that God has displayed in His Son, Jesus Christ, in giving Him to the world in His life on the cross. So, John is speaking about the sheer magnitude of the love of the Father for us in Jesus. And the only thing in these verses that remotely compares to that magnitude is the magnitude of the significance of the response that we make to this little Bible, to this gospel in a nutshell. And the truth that John is teaching us is that no matter what we do, seeking what we desire, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. But we cannot discover what our hearts may desire until we find it in the love of God the Father, in Jesus Christ, His Son. And as we look as they looked to that bronze serpent, as we look to the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross to die for our sins, to bring us everlasting life, our eyes are opened, and we are healed, we are saved, and we will spend eternity together with all those who trust in Him in that wonderful world of love in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit invite us in the gospel to share. Friends, I wonder if you are able to say, I never really felt I was really, really loved until I discovered how much the Father has loved me in His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, let's say that to Him today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonder of Your love in our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to bask in it, reflect on it, let it permeate our thinking and our feeling. We want to live out of the resources of Your saving love. We want to live in such a way that it will be evident to our unloving and unlovely world that we know that we are loved, so that through your love for us, in us, and through us, others may hunger and thirst for that love and find it in Jesus Christ. And this we pray in His name. Amen.